0: Sitting in the chair opposite me, I have Brent Jerva. Welcome back from Berlin. How are you doing?
1: Thanks for having me, Alex. I'm doing great. Well, I'm very time warped, but other than that, I feel good. Your
0: time zone is somewhere over the Azores right now, I suspect.
1: My watch says 1.48 a.m. is my current time zone. Yeah, so. and
0: for reference, for those listening, it's currently 7.48, so... Mm, it hurts. Mm-hmm.
1: It's called jet lag. That's what it's called. It's
2: called jet lag. Oh, <laughs> oh that's right. But oh, yeah. right. well, we're still glad to have you here, Brentley. Thank you.
0: And because Brent's in town, uh, we thought it would be remiss of us not to have another Raleigh meet-up. Uh, I'm really sorry that this is so short notice, but Brent stopping by was really a last-minute decision on both of our parts. So as this show airs, the meet-up will be the Saturday, April 8th. We're going to go to Cugino Forno. I think that's how you say it. Please, if if anybody that speaks Italian... Can Tell me how you say this place, because I go to this pizza place all the time and they do amazing, amazing, authentic Italian, Neap- Neapolitan style pizza. And uh, I would love to know how to say the name of this place, because whenever we go, I just say to my wife, should we go to the Italian pizza joint that does really good pizza? Because I can't pronounce yeah. <laughs> the name.
2: <laughs> oh, so you're taking everybody to a local favorite. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's a really nice place. There's a little local brewery uh, right next door to the pizza place, so we can go and grab a couple of brewskis. And just across the parking lot, there's also some excellent ice cream as well. So we've got all the bases covered. So on Saturday, April 8th at 3 p.m. Eastern, we're going to be having a meetup. Now, just pay attention if you're on the meetup page. It's set to Pacific time, so it says 12 p.m. on there, but we're not going to show up till 3. So if we show up at 12, you are just going to have to drink a lot of beer before we get there.
2: Okay. Yeah, maybe not a bad idea at all. <laughs> we have a little bit more heads up, but not much for the Jupiter Broadcasting Linux Spring Meetup in Olympia, Washington, the capital of the state of Washington. It should be a beautiful time traditionally when Linux Fest has been, and we're picking our location now. We know it'll be in Olympia on Saturday, April twenty ninth, around one p.m. Pacific time. This is the one of the few times where the time on the meetup page is actually accurate because we are actually in. The Pacific time, always something to watch out for. And I know it's going to be a great time because I'm already bugging Brent to make it. And Wes happens to know some of the best places to eat in Olympia. So we're going to pick a good place. We'll start uh, organizing and uh, releasing more details on the meetup when we have it. But we wanted to let you know, April 29th, the end of April, if you're in the uh, Pacific Northwest, come on down to the Capitol and let's hang out and talk Linux and self-hosting. Sounds like a great time. You're really spreading yourself around over there, Brent, aren't you?
1: Yeah, you know, my goal for this year is to reach the most uh, JB meetups ever. I think, well, how many are we on now? If you you Mm. keep hosting them and you host them, then that's a pretty good way to do it. (laughs) Well, it's self-serving. I mean, it's working out (laughs) for me. All right, you do that. I'll go for the
2: largest. And we'll see. Well, that could be a lot of fun, actually. I think it's a good goal to have. Competition, ladies and gents. Competition. (laughs) Well, because I can't do the frequency this man can. I just can't. Can't keep up. I go for quantity and quality at the same time. He goes for frequency and quality. And distance. Both good. Yeah. Yeah. And distance. Yeah. But, you know, I, I really can only reach out in the local area most of the time. But as we travel out, it's useful to be on that meetup page, too, because when one of us is visiting an area, we do try to do a meetup. I wanted to say a quick thank you to all of you who subscribed to my YouTube channel
0: in the last week or so. I got to over a thousand subscribers somehow in basically two weeks. I honestly expected it to take a lot longer, so I'm extremely grateful, and uh, I will keep the videos coming. I'm going to do something around my ten gig network upgrade whilst Brent's here, get him to help me shoot some stuff down in the basement, and uh, try and do that justice. But we'll see how that goes. It's quite an ambitious project, but. Uh, We'll you
2: know, when you when you told me you were going to do a uh, topless YouTube tech channel, I thought <laughs> there's not a market for that, but it truly is a niche. Nobody else is doing that and it's working really well. So if you want to see Alex topless, you'll have to go check out his YouTube channel. What I need to do is start wearing some tight shorts as well and then I'm really in. I was surprised the thumbnails worked as well as they did. <laughs>
0: So speaking of AI-generated thumbnails, we've been looking at Whisper as a service this week, which is a AI transcription service, which we're going to be using as part of our new podcast backend service.
2: You want to tell us a bit about that, Chris? This is so, so neat. And even if you're not trying to transcribe a podcast, you probably have a video that you would like to get the text from, or like for me, maybe like some event, some conference happened and it's, they got an hour long talk. And I could just throw that through Whisper. It's OpenAI's transcription project. It has lots of language support. It has pretty good models that you can just grab and go with. And there's various forms of it, versions that run on the uh, GPU and versions that run on the CPU and command line versions and Mac desktop versions. And, of course, versions you can run in Docker. And we've been messing around with uh, a version that's known as Web Whisper. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's fantastic. Also WAS. Whisper as a service, which also runs on the CPU. So you don't have to have a crazy big GPU and has a beautiful UI. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And the, 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 the way we're using it right now is we're throwing everything we can find at it: talks, different podcasts, YouTube videos, um, speeches, and we run it through this thing and see what its results are. And ultimately our goal is to just have it as part of our encoding pipeline. But what I have found in experimenting with it is I'm always, always going to have one of these Web Whisper instances running on my land now. I I don't have it set up yet, but inevitably I will because I have found it so handy just to have a web app that I can just throw an audio or video file at and 15 minutes later or whatever less, it spits me out a complete transcript and then I can search that and grab the text.
0: I mean, you were just talking in LUP, which actually airs after this episode confusingly which you just recorded half an hour ago about note-taking systems uh, Logsec, i think was talked about a couple of others i use obsidian and i can just imagine something like this whisper thing shooting out that subtitles file into a dedicated obsidian vault and then i use the omni plugin and i can actually just search through all the text for a specific keyword or going to be super powerful for you know those youtube videos that are 15 20 minutes long that could be three
2: and you think i just want this one specific part where is it mm-hmm. and they're getting nice that's why i wanted to recommend was uh, west found this it's w-a-a-s the whisper as a service one because it's just
1: whisper as a service yeah you gotta whisper it's
2: like um so pretty that it looks like a consumer grade application it's got kind of like a beautiful dashboard and you just load the page, and it's got a spot for you to drag any kind of file that basically FFmpeg can read, for the most part. And then something else that's nice in some of these is you can also tell it to do double-speed transcription, where it essentially plays the audio file at double-speed. And if it's good, clear audio with good, clear speech, it'll pick that up, no problem. And yeah, it's not perfect, especially with some technical jargon. Um, It messes up some accents sometimes, but it's also pretty good at auto-detecting language as well but let's
0: face it if ffmpeg can't play it then you know you're pretty much out of luck anyway yeah
2: there's probably something wrong with that file mm-hmm. and brent you kind of saw a practical implementation from our friends at nextcloud they're baking whisper into hub 4
1: yeah it was kind of amazing they're baking a whole bunch of different types of ai into their newest release and it was neat to see you know just they're using a launcher that, that they call the what do they call it again the picker the smart, smart picker There you go. Smart picker. Smart picker. And um, it's just like at your fingertips. And I thought, that's really super handy. And it's sort of what you're talking about, Chris, just having something just right there ready for you to throw something at anytime you're ready for it. And uh, that seems pretty darn powerful to me. I noticed Slack has started doing
2: this. When you drop a video into a Slack chat, they're adding a little transcription below the video. And uh, Telegram is starting to offer this as a premium feature for video and audio messages on telegram and i think this type of stuff the like whisper is the signal in the hype noise right this ai stuff some of it is really legitimate and useful and some of it is just kind of tech industry hype cycle stuff but this whisper stuff is 100 usable even on the cpu you just have to make sure it's a whisper cpp project and Whisper CPP means it runs on the CPU. And then the more cores you have, the faster it goes. We have a 96-core Linode that we run it on. And I can, I can transcribe on the CPU hour-plus content in 10, 15 minutes. And they have even better transcription if you can use the GPU, but you just need a lot of GPU horsepower. And it'll scale, right? So if you don't need it super fast, you could run it on an average CPU. It'll just take longer. And it's 100% local when you're doing that. You can also call in the open API for Whisper if you want and get even more features, but I don't think we've been doing any of that. And it's been running fantastic all locally on our own box. In
0: one of the YouTube videos I released this week, I decided to try and cut through the hype noise a little bit myself, Uh, not using Whisper, but I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could ask ChatGPT to deploy some containers for me? And so I, I just wanted to throw you over there and, you know, make you go and like, comment, subscribe, and all that kind of nonsense. <laughs>
2: Tell them to hit the bell, too.
0: Oh, yeah. I actually have said to my wife, I refuse to say any of those words in the you actual video. You just videos.
2: said it. You just said it. I know. But no, it's not in a real video. so It doesn't count. <laughs> you are on video. It's just live video.
1: Bending the rules. Bending yeah. the rules. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah, but it wasn't on your YouTube channel. It's on a different YouTube channel. So it, I think it... I. I think you're okay. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm okay. I get away with it. But the idea behind it was
0: thinking, well, how good is some of this AI stuff? You know, if I ask it, write me a Docker Compose file to deploy traffic with a DNS token and blah, blah, blah. Really interesting results. And I think things like that video that I made and then things like Whisper coming along, I've also been using MidJourney to generate a lot of the thumbnails and a lot of the artwork for the the channel. I just... I feel like we're at such an amazing inflection point in technology that we haven't seen in, I don't know, like since the iPhone, maybe? Yeah, since mobile, I think. Yeah. I agree. Mobile and the internet. Except this time it feels more obvious. I don't know, mobile didn't feel particularly obvious at the time. This one feels like it's going to be such an obvious disruptor. And uh, I don't know, it's certainly not ready to take our jobs quite yet this stuff but i mean if you're a transcriber it already is taking taking
2: that is true i uh i think i worry about the self-hosting aspect of it because the obvious direction this is going to go is for better and more complete and comprehensive ai systems you're going to have to have larger and more intense models which is going to force centralization into large data centers and essentially make API services locked behind an API. And because that means the front end is cheap for the customer to use because it's just a web interface or an app or some kind of integration, it's like no cost for user adoption, it's just cost on the back end. It makes it really easy and uh, reduces barriers for users to jump on the centralized stuff. And I think when we look at what we're going to be able to run on our own lands with our own computer resources, it's going to be more purpose specific things. And it's not going to be these comprehensive systems for better or for worse. And that's why it's nice to see whisper can be run locally, but I do kind of worry that self hosting is going to be left out of this revolution a little bit, at least the really big stuff, right? Like your, uh, your chat GPT three and four type type systems just not really feasible to run them locally maybe there could be optimizations maybe accelerators built into cpus over time will bring it back locally but i have a feeling that history is going to bend for a while towards centralization on this one how do you feel about that
0: i don't see how we can possibly have a large enough data set to actually produce an accurate outcome on my little podunk basement computer which isn't that podunk or that little to be honest But, you know, we're talking these data centers, high performance compute data centers that are required to do these AI grade computations, they are probably operating at a scale that is not quite nation level, but probably not far off in terms of the capital that's required to have performance systems. I agree with you completely. I think that self-hosting a lot of this stuff is practically impossible because the data sets just aren't large enough. And we've seen we've seen with the uh, lady cylinders, haven't we? The effect of trying to do like a Mycroft locally versus the power of a Google Home or the the uh, lady that shares my name cylinder. Uh, we've seen just how different in terms of quality of responses those two things are, and I think that's quite analogous to what we're talking about here. If you don't have the data set, that really is that really is the problem.
1: But it gets me thinking a little bit about like photo. Um, search and things like that. The photo systems that we've seen come out running locally in the last year are rivaling some of the like Google Images and things no, really like that. Not. Oh, okay, okay, not I take that close. back. Forget about it. I though. mean,
2: f- well, I mean, Photo Prism and Image definitely have much better search. Like, Image recently did an update now where I can go in there and I can search for pictures of dog and car, and it will only show me pictures of Levi that have a car in it. So it's getting there, but yeah, it's not. I mean, it's getting there.
0: I mean, an an example, I was looking for a specific photo in my Google Photos the other day, and I said, two blue cars in garage, and it understood what I meant and showed me only pictures of two blue cars in a garage.
1: You you said garage instead of garage. Garage. All right, darling, garage. (laughs) (laughs) You Americans,
0: whatever.
2: Before we get too far off the uh, self-hosting of this AI stuff, something I've been enjoying, and it's better than using the web interface because you get to do more stuff, is ChatGPT UI. It is a stupid, simple Docker Compose way to run a local web client that uses the open API, ChatGPT API. And the reason why you want that is because, A, it's ready to go with GPT-4 support, but B, you can have longer conversations with less restrictions. It can follow links. You can set up short codes and your own quick keys with a repository that stays in the UI that you can then do like slash and the name of your preset prompt and it will fill it out for you with
1: variables. Ooh, that's nice.
2: It's really nice. And I can just keep it up in a pin tab. And it's it's still using the API, so it's still sending the data to open API. but the, the interface and where it all, sti- all sits, all the results and your prompts and the UI itself are all local. And because you're using the API instead of the, the public web interface, you can do more stuff with more functionality. And you just have to go get a developer API, which is pretty easy to do. Anybody can do it. And it's super easy to get set up. And it's kind of a generic name, so I'll put a link in the show notes. It's called chatGPT-UI on GitHub. Is that API token free? Yep. Oh, cool. Yeah, you just have whatever your account can do. And if you have a free account, you can do more with this self-hosted UI than you can through their interface. And then like, if you signed up for chatGPT4, if you're, on, if you're one of the people that gets access, because, you know, it's gated, uh, the UI, chat UI is ready to go for it. It works really good. That's really cool. I will
0: say, I think that uh, there are some existential threats to AI that we, you know, it's, it's very easy to, to listen to the doom and gloom and think, yeah, it's going to replace all of our jobs and, oh, we're really in trouble. But the reality is, if you, if you say, just like, um, you know, can you write me some code? And it spits out something that looks close enough to the untrained eye. And then you go and try and run that code. Because you didn't cognizize how it worked as you wrote it, you actually have a harder time debugging it when it doesn't work. And then you end up in this cyclical loop with ChatGPT saying, can you actually supply the right environment? variable here or wh- where does this where does that output and you try to spoon feed it all this stuff which you as a human have learned over the years and there's a way to go is all I'm trying to say i think a lot of the fear mongers are probably going to be right in 10 or 20 years time but for right
2: now i think we're still okay i think the ironic thing too alex it's a great point i think the ironic thing is that you have to kind of be an expert in order to use this tool correctly because it will get it wrong and it can get it wrong in confusing ways. They call it hallucinate. It can get all kinds of little things wrong. And if you don't know what you're looking at, I think you're right. If you don't have that context, that's a, that's a good insight. And um, I would recommend that people play around with it, but don't use it in production unless they are comfortable replacing like, some of the variables it might supply you or paths or things like that.
0: At some point, we ought to have a chat about data sovereignty and you know archiving and all that kind of stuff around. I mean, all the data people are throwing into ChatGPT, where does it go? Why don't you introduce us to the wonderful world of Home Assistant Victron integrations? I know this has been a huge, huge
2: deal for you. This is one of those wins that's so epic in scale that days later, I'm still vibing on that win. You know, like for me, I don't know about other people out there, but for me, wins have a very short shelf life. And then I'm right back to what needs to be fixed, what's wrong, what are we working on next? Mm -hmm. Uh, Not this time. This is a win I am basking in. I am lathering myself in this win (laughs) I have wanted since the moment uh, I got home assistant up and running. So Victron background is sort of the brains of my electrical system. It's what manages power from shore, batteries, solar. It's my inverter. It's my charge controller. It's a very sophisticated piece of gear, and it knows everything about what's going on with my system. And there's a lot of ways I could have chosen to integrate a Victron into Home Assistant. And probably ways that would be technically superior using MQTT and stuff like that. There's a lot of ways I could have done. It. I actually did have the MQTT route set up until it totally smashed my old Home Assistant system. But this time around, just just on a random Sunday. I'm sitting there on the couch with the laptop poking away at Home Assistant and I look in hacks That's the Home Assistant Community add-on store. And I see a plugin called, and I'll have a link in the show notes, Victron GX Modbus TCP integration. And my heart stopped. I knew what this meant because I've looked into this. I knew what this could possibly mean for me. And I paused, took took a deep breath, got everything up to date, did my backups, and I sort of prepared the way. I got my body ready. And I loaded up Hacks and I installed this Modbus TCP integration. Now, Modbus is a communication protocol that's really no longer owned by any vendor. It's been around since the end of the 70s. And it's just sort of been used in industrial equipment as a de facto communication protocol. And so a lot of these factory-type things and gear that has this information use Modbus. And Modbus TCP, as you probably guessed from the name, puts it on the TCP network. and. Um, This plugin allows Home Assistant to speak Modbus and pull in all of the metrics, all of the sensors, all the data points from the Victron equipment and bring them in as entities into Home Assistant with sensors. And um, this is a game changer for me. It means now that my Home Assistant system is aware of the source of power. So if it's from the shore, if it's from solar if it's from batteries, generator, if it's a mix of those. It knows the state of charge of my battery bank and the rate of discharge if it is discharging and the rate of charge if it's charging. It knows the current draw of the battery bank. It knows the current draw of shore power. It knows the current draw of solar. Any errors the system has generated anywhere, any battery problems, any heat issues, anything like that, it knows about, and it's sending it as a sensor into Home Assistant. So now in my automations going forward, I can have an automation be aware of the source of power if I have unlimited shore power or if I have precious short battery power. That can all be taken into consideration. And I can also expose any kind of problems the system might be having. And I can expose other information that we need to know about. Um, Like one of the things we do frequently is we can limit the draw the RV might have when we plug into shore power. We can say, don't draw more than 15 amps so you don't blow this circuit. And because it's a 50 amp connection. And it's easy to forget you've done that. This happened recently. We left and forgot that we set the limit. And the next time we plugged in, we weren't getting enough power. I can now just, I just, have a, I just have a card in Home Assistant now on my power dashboard that just shows me what my limit is currently set at. I can, that's a number I can now expose to Home Assistant. And it all refreshes every 15 seconds. And how much would you pay for a commercial
0: System that had that level of sensor not censorship, but you know what I mean, like the amount of sensors yeah. and data.
2: Well, um, one of the ways people get this into home assistant traditionally is they buy like an eight nine hundred dollar Linux box that this company makes, Vitron Vitron makes, and they they interface with that. And so some people will pay up to a thousand dollars plus install time for it. So yeah, I'd, you know, I considered one of those boxes because it's one of the more elegant ways to do this. But you know, what's fantastic too is Home Assistant automatically detected which sensors are like the sensors needed for plugging into the Home Assistant energy usage dashboard stuff. So now I'm getting in Home Assistant our energy usage, what of that mix is solar, what our solar production is versus projected, current source of power, the cost, because I'm looking up my local cost, so now I know what my run cost is when we pull, I've used $4.12 of power today. Um, And I can see how much my solar covered, which is not much today because it's pretty cloudy overcast day. No, in the Pacific Northwest. I know, right? Weird. And it's been really interesting to just kind of start collecting this information. And then because it's a sensor in Home Assistant, I'll, I'll have data that can help me see if batteries aren't functioning well. Like there's all kinds of information I'll be able to expose over time as well. So what's the coolest automation you've got planned
0: for it then? I'm I'm imagining obvious stuff like AC only runs under certain conditions.
2: Yeah, for sure. Definitely the electric heaters won't run when the battery uh when the power source is battery and not sure. I think that's number 1 that I'm going to probably set up in the next weekend. Um and I'm looking forward to maybe looking at like a low power mode. I don't know exactly what this is, but I'm almost picturing like a different set of automations that get turned on and off, depending on, on the power source. And then along with that, I don't know if this is possible, a different default dashboard. Mm. that gives us different options and stuff. That would be really interesting. So like it's, and something, the other thing I've thought about too is like when in low power mode, what if high power devices, when they get turned on, they automatically have a 15 minute timer, unless you turn it off, that disables them after 15 minutes and things like that. Maybe you could shut down a few Raspberry Pis. Yeah. 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 They're not usually the offenders. It's usually the the big one is the like the electric water heater, obviously. Of course. Yeah. Toaster oven. Yeah, the toaster oven. So I start thinking too, like maybe it's time to start looking at some Shelly's for DC devices and AC devices. I, I really I'm looking forward to also tying in the real time energy data I have from all the smart plugs that do have that. Like all the Z Wave and Zigbee devices are giving me real time draw at the individual plug level too which is just more information to bring together and start making decisions.
1: You know, I remember the exact time and place where you were both talking about this exact topic. Um, Oh yeah. At least when I was listening to it, I remember the time and place you talked about it clearly slightly before then because it was recorded, but I was listening to a self-hosted episode like two years ago where a listener had you know, played with something similar. And I remember you being super excited, but The method of getting the data was so convoluted back then. It's amazing what, you know, two years of someone who clearly put in a lot of work to write this piece of software for you (laughs) is going to help a ton of people. This is like a huge breakthrough, really. I would love this for my house, not just an
0: individual house level energy monitoring which is what i have now i I have um that ct clamp thing that we built as a as a group as a group of listeners we know we did a group buy on on something uh, a couple of years ago now so i have like things like my ac units on there you know there's only there's only four channels so i can't monitor everything but there are companies making residential circuit breaker panels now that have some level of integration with smart stuff a lot of the commercially available ones right now are hot cloud garbage stuff which are super expensive and locked into their monthly subscription all that all that crap i just want somebody to make a Tasmota motor compatible generic residential circuit breaker to go into a normal fuse box and then that then plugs in through Ethernet, not Wi-Fi. I don't want 25 <laughs> different Wi-Fi devices all right next to each other. Uh, that, would be, that would be sick.
2: But, um, you know, you've basically got that with this Modbus thing, don't you? It's huge. And, you know, to both your points, uh, one of the things that's, I think, kind of a lesson, maybe I'm not quite sure what the lesson is, but I'm feeling like there's a lesson in here. There was probably five different ways I could have figured this out. One of them involved buying equipment, One of them was sort of like this funky crazy way to extract the data. Another one was like this hose of information that crashed my system. And then the other, that I have to be honest, I was tempted by, I was legitimately tempted by because it was just buy a cloud package service, hook up to the API, install an integration, done. Put the key in home assistant, call it good. And it just pulls in it my my Victron would upload all the same information to their Victron cloud, and then my home assistant would stream it back down to me. And you guys know I'm trying to build this thing for complete, total off-grid access if I need. If I want to go somewhere with no internet to relax, I want all this stuff to work. But I was tempted by that. And I was tempted by the, the time just to buy the little embedded Linux box. And then I could, you know, hey, at least it's Linux, right? I waited and this came along and it's so simple and so straightforward and it's all over the land. When Jeff was up there with you a few weeks ago,
0: you were getting into the ESP Home side of things. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm picturing is some kind of custom 3D printed like LED dashboard based on certain parameters, certain lights come on and certain colors like a traffic light system. And could you have it so that, you know, when your batteries are above 80 percent that it's just green across the board and then. You know, you could, you could almost switch modes ba- based on, you know, like, um, you ever seen these shots of the inside of like a, a railway company's like signal room or something, something like that. You're making me think
2: of in the, in Star Trek, in the original series, <laughs>
1: yes, the I enterprise
2: w- en- engineering room has like one of these boards you're talking about. I was just going to say that. That's Absolutely. amazing. That's Great it. Mines. That's what you Great need. Mines. Alex, that's so brilliant. You could do that with ESP Home pretty
0: easily because each LED, don't forget, is individually addressable. So you could do it probably with just one PSP device in there. That'd be so cool. Our more regular listeners will remember that January was the month of Jellyfin. I thought it was time for a very quick Jellyfin update. I'm still using it, which is freaking awesome. It's way better you know, in terms of stickiness than I ever expected. But there, are, I have had a couple of small issues, uh, mostly to do with HDR tone mapping Um, I don't know, I just really can't get a straight answer from the Google. Sometimes a couple of files turn this weird shade of like magenta, pinky purple. Um, I don't really know what's going on. And sometimes I end up just having to get a different file altogether. Uh, Sometimes it works fine in Kodi, sometimes it works okay in Plex, but I don't know. It, It can just be a bit funky sometimes. I ran into an issue the other day, though, where HDR wasn't magenta. It was just really flat-looking in Jellyfin. And so I jumped over to Plex, and it worked flawlessly. And, you know, mm. you know how it is when you're sat on the couch. Sometimes you don't want to fix it. You just want to effin' watch the thing. So I didn't really give it much thought. I loaded up Plex, played played the show. And then when the end of the episode came up, It said skip credits in the bottom corner. You know how like the skip intro thing is there? And they've implemented an intro skip option for the credits as well, just like Netflix.
2: Oh, that is a great idea. Uh, It kind of feels like they're lapping Jellyfin because I am still waiting for the official Jellyfin intro skipping. It's so painful. Some of these shows, some of these streaming shows have the longest intros. Yeah, The Last of Us is really long. Yeah. Yeah, and some of them have really long credits, too. So being able to skip it is really great. I have also stuck with Jellyfin. It's been it's been fine. I do think Plex is clearly better at this kind of stuff. And they seem to be able to move faster for some features. Well,
0: they've just got more resources at their disposal because they're an actual company versus an open source project. And, you know, this isn't to say Plex is better than Jellyfin because in the long run, I think we all know what the outcome's going to be. It's just for right now... There are things Plex are adding to the clients that make it more polished overall, which Jellyfin needs to catch up with. That said, when I was looking through the small print of the Skip Credits blog post, which will be linked in the show notes, I spotted a sentence or a paragraph that gave me the heebie-jeebies. So it says, "All that processing isn't cheap." With talking with regards to CPU processing for detecting these credit scenes. So, we've also created a cloud based repository to store the results in case you ever need to rebuild a library. By default, the results of all your local credit detection efforts are anonymously submitted to our new service. So, if you ever need to rebuild your library, the results are available in a few seconds instead of burning hours of CPU time recomputing them. Hmm privacy implications much they say
2: anonymous but do we believe it if they were to build the intro skipping feature today would they build it this way and uh, are they planning to change it I-, I would prefer not this let me store that information locally
0: why do you need to l- let me opt out of local storage before opting into the cloud first
2: I love it when my server's chewing away on a whole library stuff. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's inspiring. It's keep. Yeah. I love it. I just love, like, firing up the, like, I'll put htop on there because, you know, I want I want to really see the bars go. BPY top, there you go. That's a good time, right? Yeah. You know, and this is, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, can, I can see it in a world where self-hosting's on a Raspberry Pi. You know, or something like that. I could see it in a world where you're trying to save electricity. It does make me think of, it does make me wonder how they're doing the anonymous stuff and all that. Uh, maybe they'll give us some answers on that.
0: How do they know that one episode of Rick and Morty is the same as the next one? You know, maybe maybe it's a different region. Maybe it was a slightly, maybe I ripped it on my cable tv box or whatever and it's slightly different to the next one different frame rate or something i don't know what the issue could
2: be i think what they're saying is the first transcription or whatever it is you want to call it the first analysis will be done locally and then they'll like hash the results and store them on their clouds instance somewhere probably in an you know at the end of the day in probably some bucket somewhere but the insidious part is how it see, it says specifically here
0: it will transcend clean installs. Yeah. How is it doing that if it's anonymous?
2: Right, cuz it's got to be tied to your Plex login. There's got to be some link somewhere. I just don't see technically how it's possible. It could be that they're using bad technical translation what they mean is that they're like doing some sort of hash that they can't reverse, but they know it's from your account because obviously they're going to restore it when you log in. Okay, anonymity is an
0: absolute it either is or it isn't. <laughs>
2: yeah. It's not it's not a sort of anonymous. It's like
1: a great buzzword though.
2: <laughs> if they are doing like we're hashing it and then storing that and we can't reverse the hashes only your system can and they're calling that anonymous they're using the wrong language. Cuz it's not anonymous, they know who you are. Yeah, you're right. Either way, it's it's a great example of a great idea but one that maybe isn't quite in the head of the target market. It's the target market for streamers, no doubt, for people that are already all in on like cloud services all the time. But but for those of us that are digital hoarders and collectors, we I like I just said, I like it when it runs on my system. Let it rip, baby. Um, plus, sometimes I clean stuff up and, you know, I just like let it rip. I don't care. And I think if you get in the if you get in the head of the enthusiasts, it, these kinds of features for us, they raise more questions, I think, than we're comfortable with. And then we kind of look over at Jellyfin and we think, well, they're never going to do that because they could never pay. They could never afford to do this. Right. So it's never gonna be an issue with Jellyfin. And like Alex is saying, it it might not have skip intro and now skip credits, but I also don't really ever have to worry about this. It will one day.
0: Even if it doesn't have it yet. I have absolute faith in the Jellyfin team that in the long run, they're the right horse to pick.
2: So one of our favorite services was purchased by Apple years ago. And Dark Sky kind of became a community favorite because a lot of us DIYers and self hosters could build apps and integrations for home assistant that pulled in the dark sky api that was pretty data rich pretty good weather service but like all good things it came to an end and some of us migrated sooner than others you and i both left it to the last minute though didn't we <laughs> well i had the opportunity when i reset up the yellow which was a little bit ago now so i i set it up then but um I realized this afternoon, I don't know if I fixed the studio home assistant incidents.
0: So the API for Dark Sky expired on March the 31st, I think, or April 1st. Yeah. I did mine yesterday, so April 4th. Uh, it's just <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just the kind of week it's been over here. I've been super busy. Uh, and so I, I looked through the Reddits, I looked through the Googles, trying to find all the different alternatives. And I came across this one called Pirate Weather, pirateweather.net. They provide a free API, which is Dark Sky Drop-In Compatible. And I think it's uh, 10,000 hits of free uh, with their tier, which is equivalent to roughly five-minute updates across the course of a year. So if you've got multiple instances, you're probably going to want to give them some money. If you want to support them to keep doing this, you probably want to give them some money as well and support the project. Because weather is an expensive business to get access to the backends you need to get access to. But the upgrade process was actually pretty darn easy. The hardest part was actually creating an API key on the, on the, frankly, horribly designed pirate weather UI backend for the API. Like you had to go through five or six different layers of, anyway, five minutes, 10 minutes later to generate an API key, throw it into a Home Assistant YAML, add the integration and you're good to go.
2: Yeah. And, and they've really done a great job because it, because it is API compatible. You don't really have to update much. Such good information, too. Like, the data quality, I think, is top-notch. I think it might be even better.
0: Like, the the weather card that I use on my home screen of my Home Assistant, my love Lace dashboard, all I had to do was update the source of the entity sensor data from, you know, was it weather.darksky to weather.pirate weather as the entity source. And something about the way in which it presents the information, to me, feels... More accurate? I, I, I don't know yet. We'll, we'll see because we only did it yesterday, but I'm liking it so far.
2: Yeah, me too. Yeah, and I'm uh, another one of those things, like like the, like the uh, Victron TCP Modbus stuff, that integration, and this pirate weather service. Just so thankful because these are things I, uh, I use and depend on, and they make life easier for me. So there's some people out there building tools that us self-hosters depend on that I'm so immensely grateful for. Still need a
0: good iOS and Android Dark Sky replacement, though. Carrot Weather isn't it.
2: When's the last time you tried the built-in weather app?
0: Uh, Probably today, and then waiting for the radar to update. It's just painful sometimes on
2: iOS. I know they've made it better. It's just I remember what Dark Sky used to be like, and it's just not as good. So, you know, now that I'm an Android guy, because you know how I use Android now? (laughs) With Graphene OS. (laughs) Sorry, say that again. It's called Graphene OS, what? (laughs) What, you didn't say graphene. What did you say?
1: <laughs>
2: well, you haven't <ever> heard <laughs> of draffene OS? You ever heard of draffene? Giraffene?
1: Yeah, am, mis- am I missing
0: a joke there? What?
1: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it totally is. What's going yeah, on? No, you don't want to know. It's just a long story. Oh, is it a lup thing?
2: Yeah, it's, a- <laughs> it's one of those uh, lup, lup things.
1: Isn't everything?
2: But I wanted to give a recommendation for a really good weather app on uh, Android now. I've really been enjoying shadow weather which reminds me a bit of the pirate weather folks. And one of the things I like, in fact, I like it so much that uh, I gosh darn became a premium member. But one of the things that's great about it is it's pulling in multiple weather sources, including open weather. It still claims dark sky. I don't know if they have a commercial version and the Aris weather sources. And it, it synthesizes all of that into a local weather report. I don't think you have shadow weather on iOS, but you gotta give you know you gotta give carrot another try too because you can customize the crap out of that. There's lots you got you got answers. Which uh, which phone do you use that Androids on? This one, you know me
0: because I'm an Android person now. This is the uh, Pixel Seven Pro. Uh, how do you like the curved edges? Because I always find I always found those were just a bit annoying.
2: I guess I'm still I'm still enjoying the gimmick. Although um, I do accidentally trigger YouTube videos when I go to pick up my phone. Like if I have the YouTube app. Open and it switches the video I'm watching right in the middle of the video. And I effing hate that. I hope you remember to like, comment, and subscribe to KTZ Systems. And ring that bell. That's twice. Hey, we got some boosts. We're going to read the top four on the show for time. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. But Lima 3 comes in with 9,200 sats. Mentioned that you can use ChatGPT to write Ansible, but uh, playbooks, but you better watch it. And then also writes, I want to mention NextDNS as an option for the kids' Wi-Fi. It has built-in time limits and will keep track of what sites they go to. It includes ad blocking by default, and it'll forward your internal DNS to NextDNS for seemingly robust solution. Thanks for it all. All right, so it's NextDNS. That looks really great. Yeah, I'm going to add it to my list
0: of DNS things to check out. Yeah, I'm opening it up in a tab. I have a whole bunch of networking stuff on my to-do list. ViOS is one of them. Mm, really? I've been super happy with the automated Pi-hole stuff I talked about a few episodes ago. It's been very solid, and whilst I've been doing a lot of testing and stuff, all I've got to do is add one line to my Ansible, run the Ansible playbook, and it updates the DNS locally. It's That's slick. It's wonderful. It's everything I ever wanted. <laughs> and I've had people in the email inbox badgering me to try IPv6 and give it a go after mm. my rant last episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I just don't get it, man. I just don't. I'm just not interested right now. You know? Oh, man, you're only going to get
2: them more fired up. I the know, IPv6 I crew know. is out there.
0: I even told him in my reply that, I'm oh, sorry,
2: it just seems kind of complicated. And yeah, oh well. They need a name like the IPv6 Brigade or something, you know. Woo. <laughs> Sir Lurksalot comes in with 8,022 sats. Uh, he says, I'm really vibing on the idea of stacking Ws, as Chris likes to put it. And it's working for me. As a person who struggles with motivation and focus at times, it's really been helping me find things I can be excited about. And involve discrete steps I can take and feel good about. And while I know that I'm a really capable person, I struggle with a lot of self doubt. So the baby step approach is stacking wins and stacking wins has had the side effect of making me feel more confident in myself. This is the way it works for me is I get excited about something, I add on to it, and I just keep myself going. For example, I'm excited to provide jellyfin for my household. So I get the basic setup, that's a win. I already watched a movie together and it was well received. That's a win. Next, I'll figure out how to run a VPN for torrent traffic only. That will be a win. I'm already motivated for the next one, Jelly Seer. And if the roomies like it and use it, it's a win. That is a side of
0: self-hosting that we don't talk about an awful lot, is how you're obtaining a set of skills, very specific, valuable skills. I'm turning into Liam Neeson here. But uh, it's, it's a set of skills that transfers beyond it transcends beyond just hosting a simple jellyfin server or something you know that seems trivial and silly at the time if if i look back over the last decade of my quote unquote linux career you know i started off running a, a plex server and it was a proper gateway drug and here we are you know working for a linux company every day you know so Take those W's, take those wins, and don't be too hard on yourself. You know, you're already elevating yourself above 99% of other Linux job applicants just by having relevant experience in an area that you're clearly passionate about. And I think by solving those real problems for yourself, you're able to talk authoritatively in an interview setting and say, hey, look, we we don't need Kubernetes here, do we? We can just have a single Docker host. You know, um, <laughs> and so for, for me, yeah.
2: for me, keep going, man. Great job. Thanks for writing in. Yeah, man. I think, too, I, I definitely appreciate that feeling of uh, you get your whole system set up and you find a great movie. You put it on your rig everything works. You watch the movie, the family likes the movie or your friends, whatever it is, enjoy the movie. That is a, that feels good too. And then it starts buffering halfway through and you're like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's worse. Yeah, on the flip side. Yeah, like actually, uh, I had a problem for whatever reason where the rip was bad and uh, the, the, the lip sync was so bad and everybody was all ready. We had the popcorn popped, literally, bowl full of popcorn popped, ready to watch the movie, had hyped it up and then it had lip sync and we couldn't watch the movie. Bad rip, huh? Maybe
0: you need to, need to get your Blu-ray tower out and go to the store and buy another Blu-ray. And I'm I'm just kidding.
2: I know it's there's no there's no it's an old rip too. So there's just no no excuse. Tom's dad comes in with five thousand sats. Hey everyone, first boost. Well, hey, congratulations! It was a pita to set up. Yeah, yeah. That's why the boosts are so special because some of these paths to get there are a journey. He says, on the topic of Obsidian, to keep notes on changes to your home lab, I've been using this method to great success. And he links us to a gist. As you mentioned earlier, with inlining a node into a changelog note, the script will do the connecting between notes for you automatically. Leaving behind the inline allows me to keep each project note separate, but we'll still see a running timeline of what's been done. Thanks for the shows. I would
0: love you tom's dad to ping me on discord and actually walk me through this in a bit more detail because i was looking at this gist earlier and trying to make sense of it and i'll be honest it looks quite complicated there's a lot of regex going on by the looks of it and i just want some extra i've got lots of questions basically because this looks awesome and i am absolutely neck deep in obsidian these days and everything i do goes through it so Anything I can do to streamline that process, I am all about it.
2: You should try to suck, uh, suck Brentley in while you're there. I just see what happens. Just see. Just curious. Uh, yeah, so find Alex on Discord at selfhosted.show slash Discord. And uh, underscore Sean comes in with our last boost. It's a row of ducks this week. And I pulled this one forward because uh, I, I loved it. It was his very first boost he's ever sent. He says, uh, you guys continue to get great guests. He loves having Alex and Alex together. In fact, he's such a big fan that he set up Fountain just so he could send this boost to us. Keep up the great content. Thank you, Sean.
0: Yeah, big thanks to Alex Ellis for coming on the show last week. It was a great uh, it was a great
2: time. Yes, I was actually just listening to the episode on my way in today and
1: I was like, "Oh, yeah.
2: It's funny cuz for me, it's been it feels like it's been a month. But uh, it was only one episode ago. If you'd like to send a boost into the show, there's two paths ahead of you. You can grab a new podcast app and join the revolution at newpodcastapps.com. Fountain is one you'll hear often, and Podverse is a cross-platform one that people love. Or just get Albie. Getalbie.com. Toss some sats in there, either through the Cash app or directly. And uh, go to the Podcast Index website and just boost from the webpage and keep your damn podcast app. It's real easy. Getalbie.com and then Podcast
0: Index. Don't forget to check out the Meetups page. Like we said, we have one literally the day after this show airs on Saturday, the 8th of April, and the up in Olympia in a couple of weeks after that. So meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. And for all the ways to get in touch with us, you can go to show slash contact.
2: You can find me on Twitter, I guess, at Chris Lass, or find me in the Jupiter Broadcasting Matrix, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix. Twitter's lasted a bit longer than we thought so far, hasn't it? Yeah, still up, still running. It's uh, go, It's got some damn dog icon at the moment. Even if it's plastered in Dogecoin right now. Yeah, it's, it's still running somehow. I, I don't know, though. I, I don't find it as much fun as I used to, I will say. Uh, but you know what is fun? Hanging out with Brentley. In fact, come get a little Brentley over at Office Hours, right? That's where Brent really cuts loose. Mm, yeah,
1: careful. Office Hours dot hair for that one.
2: And kind of, he flexes. You'll see he'll he'll show, you know, his skills and his, yeah, get him to admit stuff on air. It's a good time. Office Hours not here for that.
0: And for the self-hosting crowd, I think probably one of the most relevant LUP episodes in a while was 5.03. Brent did a great breakdown for
1: us on location of the NextCloud Hub 4 release. That was fun, yeah, on location in Berlin and got to hang out with the NextCloud crew, well, for an entire week and then for an entire other week. And uh, had a great time. So we got some pretty great context from the inner workings of that open source team. It was great. And if you want to find me generally, I think Linux Unplugged is a great place for that, linuxunplugged.com. And thanks for listening, everybody. That was self-hosted.show
0: slash 94. Wookiees in the Woods is coming up in a couple of weeks. Oh, man, now I'm missing out. (laughs) You think
2: I got enough time to drive down there?
0: Yeah, you do. If you leave, like, now, yeah, maybe. Yeah, right. Don't be too jealous, though. I took the R32 in to get a whole bunch of work done. I had to drop nearly three grand on the damn thing. What kind of stuff? The O2 sensor was broken just the one right after the engine, so pretty much the the one that controls all the fueling. So I was getting misfires. So all the spark plugs were all gummed up. The uh, first O2 sensor was knackered, Then the the two rear O2 sensors, because the previous owner had done a cat delete, had also Mm. started throwing codes in the engine as well, and they hadn't coded them out. Uh, The driver's side rear brake caliper was completely seized up, so I only had three working calipers. (laughs) Well, it's not like you're trying to do rapid stopping or anything like
2: that. Oh, my gosh.
0: The driver's airbag crash sensor wasn't working under the seat. So that's throwing a massive fault code uh, as well. Bunch of other stuff, boring
2: stuff. like. So I uh, I took the Volvo in to a new shop, a European car specialist, I thought, you know, take it in there. And I was kind of doing like a trust fall just to see like, is this shop any good? Because I kind of thinking like, I'm going to try to work on anything because the Volvo can park for a while. So I'm going to just, I'm thinking like anything that doesn't require a lift We're going to try to do, and if it requires a lift, because Volvo's built this car expecting that some repairs will be done on a lift, then I'll take it into a shop. So I need a shop for that, and I want a shop I can trust and ask questions. So I take it in, and I want to get the transmission fluid change, because I don't see anywhere in the Carfax history of this car that it's ever been done by the previous owner, so I better get it done. And uh, I take it in there, and they call us two hours later, and they're like, well, we would do the transmission fluid change, but there's no point. because." you have a driver's side axle leak and it is leaking transmission fluid and we need to get that fixed and we have to change all your transmission fluid to do it. Oh, and by the way, your front brakes are at one millimeter. And I knew my brakes need to get looked at because we were going to get to it when Jeff and Brent were here, but we just never had time. And, you know, you're starting to screw up your rotors. I'm like, Oh, okay. Okay, great. And so it's going to be about fifteen to $1,800 worth of labor. I went in for a $300 fluid change, and now it's going to be $800 of labor. And I'm like, well, let me bring it home and take a look at it. So I go and pick it up, and yep, sure enough, they're right. It's leaking right where they say it's leaking, because I, I never take the belly pan off, because I hate that. Yep. I take the, yep, it's leaking right where they say it's leaking, and I go check the rotors, and yep, we're starting to get a groove in our rotors, and it's just like... When are we going to open Jupiter Garage, huh? Yeah. <laughs> It's one thing after there, you know, we just fixed the, the focus from blowing up because the radiator hose started to leak and drained all the radiator fluid out of it. So she's going down the road with no radiator fluid, which was just two and a half, three weeks after she was going down the road with literally no oil in the engine. Well, practically no oh oil. Oh, my God. Because make- because the last place didn't put the oil filter, filter on all the way. And so it was leaking out the oil filter. Are you trying so to it- turn this into an episode of Vice Grip Garage? <laughs> <laughs> a guy just can't keep these cars on the road, man. I'll tell you what.
0: It's awful. Yeah. I'm in a bit of a quandary right now. I don't really know what to do with the cars after Wookies. I mean, I've I've been wanting to go to Wookies in the Woods, which if you're not familiar by the way, is a it's a VW Golf R enthusiasts gathering at the Tail of the Dragon just north of Atlanta.
2: Oh, I thought it was a furry group thing. <laughs> oh,
0: it's that too. Um, and so basically it's a couple of days in the mountains, everybody with an R32 and everybody with a fast VW turns up and we all hang out and have a good time. I've never actually been before. I've been meaning to go and there's always been something like COVID one year. We were going to go that year and then COVID hit and obvious reasons we didn't go. Once we've been to Wookiees with the R32 and my R, I, I don't really need two golfs. I want, I mean, I like having two, it's kind of fun, but also, you know, priorities, so I'm kind of thinking I could sell both Golfs because I had a CarMax offer come through again. <laughs> oh, my God, dude, you're crazy. <laughs> I had a CarMax offer come through it. again that was literally dollar for dollar what I owe on, on that car.
1: Uh, I've been wondering about that. Yeah, but this is exactly what happened two years I ago. I know. It's identical. I know. And you, you regretted that so much. I could see
0: selling the old one. Maybe, but I had no car one. at all. That was the difference. I had no car at all. I, we, had, we had the truck, which is a 2002 Silverado box, to be honest. Uh, it, it, albeit in good condition. Um, but it's not got any pep or any get up and go left whatsoever. Um, it, n- it never
1: did, if that makes you feel better.
0: And a Mazda CX-5, which has the driving dynamics of... Well, for, for its class, they're pretty good. But, you know, let's face it. It ain't a Golf R. So... What are some other cars I should look
1: at? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, oh, I got to sit in a Peugeot. That was really quite something.
2: Th- Don't you got to go electric if you want something more fun than the Golf? Aren't you going to have to go electric yeah, right. just to get that acceleration thrill? Yeah, maybe. Because there's not much. I mean, there's not much under hundred grand that's more fun to drive than the Golf. It's true. Are. Even under fifty k, to be honest. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at M
0: three. They're a little. They're a little pricier than I'd like, but. You know the M3 looks kind of fun,
2: and they're a monster in in ongoing cost, is what I hear. Oh, are they? I was just watching a video on YouTube, and they're the number one. Something like with within five to ten years, you end up spending like forty percent of the cost of the vehicle on maintenance and repairs for a BMW, for a modern BMW. Yeah, but I've ne- I've never owned a car more than that's true. Saying that, we've owned the truck nearly five years, so yeah. Yeah, old, but that's
1: a different purpose. They red. might also
2: have like a really sweet lease program or something where they just fix it up for you.
0: Yeah, they might. They might. But the new the new BMWs, like the brand new ones, have the horrible rabbit tooth like kidney bean front grill. Have you seen the fronts of the new ones? They yeah. look yeah. They look so bad. Like,
2: can't buy it bad. I've been looking in the opposite direction. I've been thinking, how cheap of a car could I buy? Because Dylan's gonna be sixteen in a couple of years. So I've been looking at like, what can I get for three grand? <laughs> what can I get for two grand? They're rough, you know, but you'd be surprised if you're willing to travel. You could pick some cars up. It's kind of funny that, that cars in
0: this country cost so much because I'm, I'm used to the, when I was a student, my first car was a Ford Fiesta that cost me 325 pounds. Yeah. The whole yeah. car. And I did about 15,000 miles in that thing before it gave up and which as a student for that kind of money, it was, it was perfect to be honest. But uh, you know, here the rot boxes cost two, three, four grand, and oh, yeah. that's just that's just getting started. And it's going to be loaded with problems. Yeah. Why are t cars so expensive here? I don't, I don't get it.
1: Well, they weren't. I mean, COVID happened, and all used cars went up. Plus, inflation is is changing your idea of what cheap is. Yeah, I guess so.
0: But okay so so this is this is the game that you end up playing like when I first moved here I thought to myself right 10 grand I want to buy a car for 10 grand because I don't know if I'm going to stay for more than a year let's just see let's 10 grand let's see what I get and then you look at what you can get for 10 and you're like well maybe I should just spend 15 <laughs> and then you look at what you can get for 15 and you see one for 20 and you're like ooh and That's then dangerous. there was that like, red GTI I ended up buying for like 22 or something uh, and you think, Christ, I've spent more than double what I intended to here. How did that happen?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And then, boy, God forbid you look at trucks or Toyotas. They are outrageous, aren't they, these days?
0: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I don't remember what trucks used to be like back in the old days, but I've bought two in the past. That's crazy. I wouldn't even consider buying a truck now, and I've owned two trucks. Is anybody spending ninety hundred thousand dollars 100000 on a truck in their right
2: mind. I mean, I think they're making... I don't think they're making a bunch, but I think they're selling as much as they're making, but I don't know. It's crazy.
0: I really liked the look of that F-150 Lightning, but the prices are, are creeping up, and the dealers are doing stupid adjustments, and it's no longer a $40,000 truck. It's a sixty to 65070 mm-hmm. by the time you get decent trim, and
1: that's too much. It's too much. So... Alex you might be perfectly placed for an electric car. I mean you don't really drive I would far love one. distances. What can I buy? Tell me. Model 3? Well, that's what I'm wondering is what would you buy?
0: I don't want to deal with Tesla's bad quality. You know, to replace the Mazda would be that would be the perfect vehicle to replace the Mazda and then we get something else that can do the once in a while long road trip like a really big comfy saloon or maybe 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 an F150 or
1: something that's just big comfortable you don't want to take an f-150 on a big long trip why not fuel yeah basically yeah okay Mm -hmm. unless you're hauling and that you need to you know
2: the model 3 probably would be some of the most fun
1: i don't doubt that but i mean
0: there's a bunch of proprietary stuff with it like the infotainment doesn't have carplay
2: for for one thing do you need it i don't know it's it's hard to look at the other ones because tesla's very far ahead in certain areas in like structural body design and motor design. They're way ahead of Volkswagen and Ford right now. And the Volkswagens and the Fords are very, they're very complicated. They're clearly gas cars that they've retrofitted to electric where the Teslas are electric native. The only other one that's on the market that's of any remote
0: interest to me in that segment. So it's the F-150 Lightning, probably a model three or uh, the Ionic Five from, is it, is it Hyundai or Kia? I forget who makes it.
2: No, I think it's Hyundai.
0: I like the sort of LED pixel design of the of the grill and dash. And Fuzzy Missborn took me in his at the meetup last year. It was pretty cool. I uh, that's that's the it's like it's a bit like an
2: Audi A3 or it's a bit like a Golf but a bit bigger. Like it's you know what you ought to do is ask the audience to write in with everything they hate about their EV. The ones that have EVs, and then yeah. from that figure out which one has the least amount of heat. <laughs>
0: yeah, I just think for the daycare run and stuff, which is where I do most of my miles, because I don't, I don't really have a commute. I mean, I go to the office once or twice a month, and that's half an hour away. You know, and they probably I, have it,
2: charging at the office, right? Or at least some spots for charging. Uh,
0: probably, yeah, probably. But I mean, it's only tw- it's only twenty miles. I mean,
2: and you charge at home, you're never going to have to do. You would never really have to worry about public charging
0: on solar too. That honestly that's a wet dream for me is charging my car with solar oh oh boy
2: right yeah and yeah oh that's the future